0: Hi, welcome to Bookie, which unlocks big ideas from world bestsellers in audio, text, and mind map. Please download Bookie at Apple Store or Google Play with more features. Get your free mind snack now. Today we will unlock the book The Courage to Be Disliked. The book starts with a question Is the world simple or complicated? A young person holds the view that the child's world is almost certainly a simple one, but, with age, the world gradually reveals its complexity the romantic ideals of childhood soon vanish. With age and experience, in the blink of an eye, brutal realism sets in. As people mature, they are beset with complicated interpersonal relationships. They become tangled up in all sorts of responsibilities. Despite this perception, a philosopher continues to advocate, and with great earnestness, that the world is, in fact, extremely simple. This philosopher claims that everyone can achieve happiness at any time. The youth, who cannot accept such a perspective, visits this philosopher, seeks a debate and wants to shatter the philosopher's utopian fantasies. This youth introduces some examples of various types of suffering in the real world. Yet, the philosopher is steadfast. His answer remains the same, believing that the world is not complicated. Instead, it is the youth who perceives the world to be complicated. The philosopher believes that we do not live in an objective world but, rather, a subjective world built on an individual's experience of it. Hence everyone perceives the world differently from the next person. Such a subjective perspective can be understood by considering the different feelings people will have in different seasons when they touch the water taken from a well. Underground water almost always holds a stable temperature of 18 degrees all year round, summer and winter. However, People tend to perceive this water to be cool and refreshing in the summer and mild and warm in the winter. On the surface, this appears to be just an illusion brought about by changes in the environment, and yet, it is not fully an illusion. To every person who drinks the water, the coolness or warmth of the well water is an undeniable fact. Such an undeniable reality is what the philosopher is referring to when he says that each person's world is subjective nobody can escape the reality of their own perceptions and the subjectivity of their lived experiences the philosopher highlights that the youth's belief that the world is complex chaotic and incomprehensible has nothing to do with the world itself it is something inside and has to do with the youth's worldview if this young person wishes the world to be simple he needs first to take off his tinted glasses and make some other adjustments Following the philosopher's mind, not only will the world become simple, but anyone, without exception, can enjoy that simplicity and, through it, achieve happiness at any time. Is all this fact or fiction? In the end, does the philosopher convince the youth, or does the youth succeed in refuting the philosopher's arguments? Their conversations spanned five nights. Let us recreate those five nights now. The first night, change. The second night, comparison the third night, freedom, the fourth night, happiness, the fifth night, ordinariness. Before we start to listen to these nocturnal dialogues, let us first take a moment to better understand these two protagonists, starting with the philosopher. At the tender age of 10, this philosopher was already acquainted with Greek philosophy. He studied everything, from Socrates and Plato to Aristotle. Yet, his curiosity doesn't stop there. He is also a faithful disciple of the leader of individual psychology, Alfred Adler. Besides Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, Adler is one of the three giants of psychology. He was based in Austria and a key member of the Vienna Psychoanalytic Society presided over by Freud. Later, due to an irreconcilable conflict in their perspectives, Adler fell out with Freud and founded his own brand of Adlerian psychology. This philosopher's argument that the world is simple builds on a foundation of Greek philosophy combined with Adlerian psychology. From childhood, the youth who comes to the debate has lacked self confidence. The youth feels inferior in many ways, from his academic background and credentials to his physical appearance. The youth cares very much about how he is regarded by others. He has a sense of self loathing, and his feeling of inadequacy makes him unable to sincerely wish happiness upon others. On top of this, his words and actions indicate that in the argument between Freud and Adler, he would appear to side with Freud's viewpoints. We mentioned just now how the philosopher had told the youth that provided people could adapt and change, the world's complications would fall into pieces. In response, the youth points out that people cannot change. As evidence, the youth provides an example involving a friend. This particular friend spent years holed up in his room. He never went out. Even if he fervently wished to change, to go out and work and be like a normal person, he couldn't move. He suffered from an overwhelming fear that hemmed him in. His fear stopped him from doing anything. The moment he stepped out of his room, his heart would palpitate furiously, and his hands and legs immediately started to tremble. From the youth's point of view, his friend's incapacity was because of past trauma. The youth provides instances and justifications such as bullying or a bad relationship with his parents. Ultimately these lead to intense insecurity and the friend's total inability to leave his room. The youth believes that his friend's state can only be understood by tracing its origins back to past experiences. The situation cannot be improved without getting to the bottom of it and searching for the root cause of the problem. In other words, the youth believes that how a person is now is determined by occurrences in the past. This is also what Freud terms etiology, which means the main culprit for unhappiness in the present is trauma from the past. However, the philosopher proposes another possibility. He considers that the source of this friend's anxiety is his unwillingness to go out, instead of the simple act of leaving his house. In other words, he creates a state of anxiety so he won't need to step out of the door. The philosopher acknowledges that the unease is genuine but claims that such a symptom has a purpose, which is to stay confined and not face the world. This way of thinking exemplifies teleology, the study of the purpose of a given phenomenon, rather than its cause. It is the approach that Adler advocates. From Adler's point of view, life is not a grand play that adheres to the law of cause and effect. A past experience does not have a direct impact on the present. He believed that the mental trauma caused by a tragic experience in the past does not, in fact, exist. It is the meaning we give to those past experiences that really affects us. What's more, the reason why we attribute such special significance to our past experiences is to fulfill certain present goals. In the case of the youth's friend, the part of him that is unwilling to go out taints his past experiences with pain and suffering. Eventually, this pain becomes a magic weapon he can wield whenever he seeks to resist stepping out of his room. Even if he feigns the appearance that he would truly desire to go out, in actual fact, he has already made up his mind that it is unthinkable for him to do so. If ever a day comes that he determines that he needs to go out, he will adjust his goal, and his pain and anxiety will be nullified. In contrast, from the perspective of etiology, this friend will stay trapped in a vicious cycle of determinism continuing to be affected by the past trauma he sees as unchangeable. In such a way, he is powerless in his circumstances, incapacitated and beset with fatalistic pessimism. The youth doesn't want to accept the philosopher's teleology. So, the youth continues to present further examples to refute the philosopher's arguments. The youth mentions an incident that happened the previous afternoon. He was reading in a coffee shop when a passing waiter accidentally spilled coffee onto his brand new clothes. The waiter's mistake caused the youth to fly into a rage. The youth argues there is an obvious and explicit trigger to the upset and the anger. It was not put on to fulfill any ulterior motive. However, the philosopher still holds the opposite perspective. From the philosopher's point of view, the youth did not fly into a rage and then start shouting but rather got angry so that he could shout. For the philosopher, the youth used his rage to assert his status. The youth wanted to be taken seriously and to achieve this, he needed to frighten the waiter. It was too long-winded to reason things out. Anger was a fast way to win the water's deference. The youth, unhappy with the philosopher's explanation, blurts out, no way. Anger is a more impulsive emotion. I didn't think it over and then get angry. The philosopher comments that anger is not as uncontrollable as the youth imagines. If a parent is in the midst of lecturing their child angrily, they can still immediately switch to a courteous tone the instant they receive a phone call from their boss, for example. As soon as the call ends, they pick up their rage where they left off. The philosopher suggests that the youth's anger is essentially the same. It is simply a tool that can be taken out and used or put away for when it's needed again. Here, the philosopher is not denying anger per se, but rather trying to say that the idea of spontaneous anger cannot be used as a defense for every single action. If this were the case, many crimes would be crimes of passion, and hence, forgivable. The philosopher thinks that, like rage, many things ensue from our own choice. People can, for example, become unhappy in a certain period. However, it's not because they were born into unfortunate circumstances or encountered misfortune. It is because they have the sense that unhappiness is, in fact, intrinsically a good thing to feel, so they choose to be unhappy. Similarly, those people who never change their circumstances stay stuck because they have already resolved never to change. Possibly, this is because they feel that even though the present circumstances are miserable, they've already got used to misery. In this way, they do not need to expose themselves to any new risks. They may also be worried that they will not be able to cope with additional challenges and the unease that change could bring. This is why Adlerian psychology believes that people's lives are the result of the choices they make. Adler would say that we make a world of our own accord. To be sure, there are indeed things that we cannot choose or change, such as our birth families, their wealth, or poverty. We cannot pick the personalities of our parents, our race, nationality, or creed. However, all these things are merely our beginnings. They are not our ends. If we remain fixated on what we were born with, keep complaining, or only fantasizing about opportunities that we can change these elements, it's predictable that everything will just stay the way it is, forever. However, if we decide to focus our energy on what we can make of our equipment, then we still stand a chance of achieving improvement. This was the substance of the first night's conversation. Listening into this talk, we heard about two viewpoints on change. Looking through the lens of etiology, unhappiness in the present is a consequence of trauma in the past. Because we cannot change the past, we are helpless. No matter what we do, we can't improve our current lives. On the other hand, if we follow teleology, we would understand sometimes unhappiness is a choice we make out of the fear of change we can confront the fear and choose to lead a happy life. Today we are just sharing limited content. To unlock more key insights of world-class bestseller, please download our app. Just search for Buki at Apple Store or Google Play, get your free mind snack now.